this morning to Luke chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 31 through 35. I guess you could open your Bibles anywhere you want, but we're going to be in Luke 13, 31 through 35. I don't want to seem too authoritative. We're studying through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, these are fewer verses even than we normally would take on a Sunday morning, but so important, this, this little talk that Jesus gave at the end of Luke chapter 13. And so let's read it, and then we'll talk about it. On that very day, some Pharisees came, saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See? Your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, it's a privilege for us to have your word, and especially words that you spoke while you were on the earth. We want to understand them as they were spoken, in their context, but we want to see the meaning that they have for us in our context today, living in 2005 here in Hanford, California, Lord, and the surrounding cities that we're from. We want to see Jesus in a very powerful, in a very real way. We want to hear you speaking to our hearts by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We want to be filled with the love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We want to be bursting with that love, telling others even here this morning how much God loves them and then others that we will encounter along our way in this world. May we be enamored with, captivated by, overwhelmed in the love of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. I want to begin today by reciting an epic poem. Some of you will recognize it because it was put to music in the 1960s. It has in it a few vocalizations, which I will do my best to reproduce. I can't be serious if I want to. Here it is. When you find yourself in danger, when you're threatened by a stranger, when it looks like you will take a licking, There is someone waiting who will hurry up and rescue you. Just call for super chicken. He will drink his super sauce and throw the bad guys for a loss. And he will bring them in alive and kicking. There is one thing you should learn when there is no one else to turn to. Call for super chicken. Amen? How many of you even remember super chicken raise your hand okay a few of you 
Super chicken was Henry Cabot Henhouse III, the richest chicken in the world, and an amateur scientist. He was on the Bullwinkle and Rocky show. It's created by Jay Ward. He would drink super sauce that his trusty sidekick and butler, Fred, would mix up. Fred, by the way, was a lion. The super sauce would transform Henry Cabot Henhouse III into super chicken, although it gave him no discernible powers. Now, here's the bridge as to why I did that. Jesus compared himself to a hen. Oh, oh. Given the number of animals available, it is curious that Jesus chose a hen. What about the mighty eagle of Exodus soaring over danger? What about the uh, proud lion of Judah mowing down his enemies with a roar? Compared to either of those, a mother hen does not inspire much confidence. An ordinary hen is what Jesus chose. What he will be is a mother hen who stands between the chicks and those who mean to do them harm. A hen has no fangs, it has no claws. All she has is her willingness to shield her babies with her own body. If foxes want them, they will have to kill her first. Which is exactly what happened, as it turns out. One night in the garden, while all the babies, so to speak, were asleep, the foxes came, the babies were scattered, Jesus died the next day, his wings spread, his breast exposed as he hung on the cross at Calvary. The actions of a hen may simply be instinct. It was much more than instinct that motivated Jesus to spread his arms on the cross. His lament over Jerusalem reveals his true motive. It was love. It was God's love for lost sinners that sent Jesus into the world. It was Jesus' love for them that brought him to the cross. We're going to look at what love's got to do with it. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus' love for you could not be restrained. And number two, Jesus' love for you can be refused. First of all, in verses 31 through 33, Jesus' love for you could not be restrained. Jesus was busy serving his father when he was warned of a death threat against him. In verse 31 it says, On that very day some Pharisees came, saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. This is the same Herod who had been responsible for beheading Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. He certainly was capable of murder. We don't know, however, if this was a genuine threat or just a ploy on the part of some Pharisees to get Jesus back into territory where they would have more political power and influence over him. If it was a ploy on the part of the Pharisees, it teaches us to be focused on God's will for our lives and not to be swayed by fear. Danger or discouragement are not by themselves reasons for altering your course. That's interesting. Because normally uh, we're taught to respond to danger, to react to discouragement. And in most walks of life in most areas that's good but as a christian we can't automatically assume that danger and discouragement mean that we're out of god's will quite the opposite sometimes and this is a word that we need to hear because so often we uh we we're looking for the easy way let's just be honest and we have a sense that if we're in the will of god god's going to be blessing like crazy Whatever our ministry is, it's going to take root and grow and flourish. 
Certainly nothing's going to come against it. And if there's any danger or difficulty, any discouragement that comes, then we immediately want to close up shop and go to where the real blessing is. We want to find that spout where the glory comes out and just hang out there and be refreshed. Paul Paul the Apostle, he wrote of Epaphroditus at one point that he was sick unto death for the work of the gospel. Paul himself at one time, he was on his way to Jerusalem. And this flamboyant Pentecostal prophet named Agabus had a prophecy for Paul. He couldn't just give it to him. He had to dramatize it. And he grabbed some girdle and he wrapped the girdle around his wrists and he says, so will Paul be bound in Jerusalem. And so the believers, seeing the danger, they urged Paul not to go. And Paul said, well, yeah, that, that's probably going to happen because Agabus is a good prophet. But God has set my course for Jerusalem. And whatever happens there, happens there. And so we want to be careful about this. Certainly you don't go into danger. You don't look for discouragement. You, you don't pray for difficulties. But oftentimes these will find you. And, and you just need to know that you're in the will of God as Jesus did. On the other hand, this may have been a sincere warning by some sympathetic Pharisees. We tend to forget that there were a few believers among the Pharisees. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He came to Jesus at night to ask him some questions. And Jesus had that amazing dialogue with him about being born again. And we have a feeling throughout the scripture uh, whenever Nicodemus is mentioned, that he was sincerely seeking after God. We sometimes think in terms of groups rather than individuals when it comes to salvation. You can find believers in the strangest groups. You could find believers among the Pharisees. You can find believers among some of the cults. Now, I'm not saying it's a good thing for them to be there. But you can sometimes find believers among the cults. But if they're genuine believers, if they've really come to faith in Jesus Christ, they won't stay there very long. It doesn't take long for the light of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to expose falsehood and for them to come out of those false groups and those weird religions that they're involved with. Sometimes people say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to stay here because I want to change this from within. Hey, listen, if you start changing from within, they kick you out. And so if you're talking to somebody who thinks they've been changing some religion for the past 20 years from within, <laughs> they're not doing nothing. They're just too afraid to leave because of their family ties or different uh, things like that. And so, so, you know, we shouldn't judge. You know, not everybody in this room is a Christian just because we're at Calvary Chapel. Not everybody in some of these other groups is an unbeliever, it's, it's a matter of the individual's heart and where they are with God. Jesus was not going to alter God's course for his life because of a little thing like a death threat. And so in verse 32, he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. If you read Bible commentaries, there's a lot of discussion about Jesus calling Herod that fox. Apparently, it's a derogatory term in that culture, and the commentators feel they must defend Jesus' use of sarcasm. 
Jesus doesn't really need any defending. If this was sarcasm, then it seems that there can be a proper use of sarcasm. Boy, that gives me hope. I just, I don't know about you, but, but uh, just as a personal biographical note, we grew up in a very sarcastic family. And I felt like it was my job to pass that on, you know, as, as my children were born. And so uh, we love sarcasm. We temper it a little bit. When we're not with family, I mean, we don't want to offend too many people and stuff, but uh, maybe this is sarcasm, maybe not. I think it was. If this isn't, certainly there's some coming. But it's more likely that Jesus called Herod a fox not just to be sarcastic, but because he was about to compare himself to a hen. He was setting up his analogy. Herod and all those opposed to the kingdom of God were like foxes. Jesus was like the mother hen. The people were the chicks who could come to Jesus and be saved rather than devoured. Now, I just, again, want to dwell on this. This is some... You would not compare yourself to a hen, I don't think, if you were the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Hey, guys, this is what I'm like. I'm like a mother hen. And the world and everybody in it is like foxes seeking to devour you. I mean, you're... I don't know, chickens, they're just not that strong. And yet it's a beautiful, perfect analogy. Now, Jesus twice mentioned the concept of the third day. In common everyday language, it meant nothing more than our phrase for the next several days. But it had a deeper meaning as well. First of all, it means that he was on a definite path in the will of God. He knew where he was going. It was all mapped out before him one day at a time. We too should have the understanding that God has both a plan and and a path for our lives. We're told in the Bible that God has before ordained good works for us that we should walk in them. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And so if God has before ordained, He sees it ahead of time that we should walk in them, it's a process of discovering what God already has out in front of us. So often, we think we are deciding our life path when we should be discovering it. It's really not up to us to go to God with our decisions. Say, Lord, I've decided to go here or there, or this is what I'm going to do with my life. We need to check with the Lord. Lord, what desires have you given me? What gifts have you given me? What is it that, Lord, you want me to do? Who is it that you want me to be? How can I best serve you? Where am I going to discover your path and plan for my life? And the Lord is usually more than willing to reveal those things to you. He's not all that mysterious about it. The mystery comes in when we're not really feeling like the Lord is is really in our life. I mean, we're Christians, we go to church, we go through the motions, but we, we don't feel His presence very strongly because many times we're doing what we want to do. The, the interesting thing about the Lord is He'll give us desires and then He'll always give us the desire of our heart, but many times it, it requires our discovery. Initially, we, we don't think we want to do the things that the Lord has called us to do, and then later on we can't see how we would have ever gotten through life without them. And so we want to always discover God's will for our life. Second, on a literal third day, Jesus would be perfected. 
It's obviously a reference to his resurrection from the dead on the third day. Of course he would be killed. I mean, they're calling and saying, hey, Herod wants to kill you. Well, of course I'm going to die. That's the whole point. That's why I was born. But it's not Herod or any plan of man that is going to take my life. He would lay down his own life, and then he would take it up again according to a plan that was devised before the earth was even created. Now, next Jesus said, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. That stung. This is sarcasm, if I can use that in the right way. It was a reminder to the Jewish leaders that God's prophets through the centuries had been rejected and martyred. While some were killed outside the city of Jerusalem itself, the thought here is that Jerusalem was the center of Jewish authority and power. So even if a prophet were killed somewhere else, it was with the approval of the Jewish leaders at Jerusalem. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem where he would be crucified, where he would rise from the dead and complete the work he was sent into the world to perform. No power on the earth or under the earth or in the supernatural realm could alter his resolve to die on the cross for the sins of the human race. He had set his face towards that from eternity past. It was getting closer and closer. No death threat. Nothing could alter him from going to the cross. We're not left in the dark in Scripture as to what his motive was. It was love. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. Jesus came to save you. He wasn't motivated by instinct or by a sense of duty. He loved you before you were born. He loves you still. Nothing could restrain his love for you. You know, sometimes, I mean, there's so many metaphors and images of God in the Word of God because you can never really fully capture the essence and the greatness and the depth and the breadth and the, the beauty of who God is and who Jesus Christ is. But I think oftentimes we think of God more as a, as a judge or as a manager or, or as a creator or in some other way than as a lover. If God is anything, he's romantic. The Bible is full of romantic metaphors and manuscripts. And if you want to think of one image that really captures who God is, it's the love of God. God is love. And, and, and it was love that sent Jesus Christ into the world. Certainly, it was to satisfy God's sense of justice and, and all of these other things. But it was love. It was Jesus' love for you. Nothing could restrain that love. Some Pharisees warned Jesus that he was in danger. He wasn't in danger. They were. They were as helpless as chicks. Their only protection would be to come under the wings of the hen. Sadly, most in Judaism would not. And from them we learn in verses 34 and 35... Jesus' love for you can be refused. 
Now, these next words are referred to as Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. You find them here and in the Gospel of Matthew. They reveal the compassion of the Lord and they put his love for lost mankind into perspective. They're also going to reveal a mystery that has bothered theologians for centuries. Although God is the almighty sovereign Lord, his love can be resisted and it can be refused by an act of the human will. First, let's look at the lament itself. In verse 34, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. The opening words are quite a history lesson. Jerusalem is a city, of course, but it also represents the seat of authority and power. And as we've already mentioned, the authorities among the Jews often use their power to persecute God's prophets. The religious and political leaders of Israel killed them. They stoned them to death in their disobedience and sin. The children of Israel were as helpless in the world as baby chicks. Everywhere were foxes seeking to destroy and devour them. Their only hope was to gather under the protection of the hen who would give her own life to satisfy the hunger of the fox letting her chicks survive. If I can say this, the Jews were dumber than baby chicks. They ignored the centuries of prophetic clucking that had been going on. They would ignore now Jesus. And as a result, Jesus made the following prophecy. Verse 35, see, look into the future is what it means. Your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Looking into their future, Jesus saw their house left desolate. House refers both to their temple in Jerusalem, their house of worship, and to the people themselves who were the household of faith on earth. We've referred many times in the past to the Roman siege of Jerusalem from about 68 to 70 A.D. The Jewish temple was burned to the ground. As many as one million Jews were killed. Another 100,000 or so were taken captive. Jews were scattered all over the known world for over 1,900 years, where many of them even remain to this day. I'd say they were definitely left desolate, wouldn't you? Sadly, this is a prophecy that came all too true. It won't always be so. Jesus promised to return a second time. He will come, and he says here that the Jews alive on planet earth at that second coming will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which means they will recognize him as their Messiah and Savior. We understand from Scripture that Jesus' second coming will be at the end of a seven-year tribulation on the earth. Jews especially will be hated and hunted down during that time, but God will protect them. One of the reasons that the Jews will be hunted and hated, uh, hated and hunted down during that time, it will be Satan's last effort to nullify and void the word of God. Because the Bible promises that all Israel will be saved at the, com- at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Those Jews which are alive at that second coming will receive him as their savior. And so the devil is about his business during especially the last three and a half years of that tribulation trying to destroy every Jew on the planet 
so that there are no Jews to receive their Lord. And God miraculously, wonderfully protects them during that time. All the armies of the world are at one point gathered together in a valley called Megiddo. We know it as the Battle of Armageddon. And then Jesus will suddenly appear in the heavens. He returns to rule and reign upon the earth. Then all the Jews will see him as their Savior and they receive him as their Lord. They enter into, on the earth, a 1,000-year kingdom of heaven on the earth, the millennial kingdom, along with non-Jews who have survived the Great Tribulation as well. Now, by the way, just a little footnote Jesus is not coming to earth the second time as a baby. Some of you are watching the NBC miniseries, Revelations. Shame on you. Watch Super Chicken reruns instead. It's closer to the truth because at least you can get an analogy out of it. I haven't watched it at all. I've seen the commercials. How stupid are they? And the other, I saw a commercial the other day where, where Jesus comes, he's a little baby, he's floating, I don't know if it's the ocean or a river, he's kind of like a Jesus-Moses thing at the same time, you know. He's in a little archetype thing and they're searching for the baby. They have a conversation with some ditzy girl that says she's the mother of the baby. I mean, it's crazy. You know, if you want to have something cool, just do, just do a miniseries out of the book of Revelation. Just take each chapter and just... Hey, let's just, do, let's just use this as our script. You could keep special effects people going for months just figuring out what the demons look like who come out of the abyss and attack people and bite them and destroy them and people who are trying to kill themselves, but they can't. I mean, it's fabulous stuff. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's Emmy award-winning stuff. And said, let's make up a bunch of superstitious nonsense because we don't want to offend anybody. The only people they offend is genuine Christians who are like, what are you doing? Oh, well, my little thing. In the meantime, the gospel is being taken to everyone in the world, Jew and non-Jew. The love of God is calling to men and women and children everywhere to repent and be saved. Jesus told you plainly in verse 34 that the Jews were not willing to come and be saved. I'm told by Greek scholars that the sense of his words are to say this, I willed and you willed not. This is the mystery that has perplexed scholars. What is the relationship between God's will and my will? Or to put it another way, what is the relationship between God's sovereignty and my responsibility? Or to put it yet another way, what is the relationship between divine election and my freedom to choose. Well, let me get right to the solution. There is no problem between God's will and my will. No problem at all between God's sovereignty and my responsibility. No problem between divine election and my freedom to choose. I say there is no problem because the Bible clearly teaches both God's sovereignty and my responsibility as being simultaneously true. The problems occur only when we try to fathom how two seemingly contradictory truths can be simultaneously true. In other words, we've created the problem because of our own desire to fully and completely understand the mind of God. Here's what happens. 
Men read the Bible and want to develop a system of theology within which everything fits nicely together and works in ways that the human mind can easily understand. Now, I'm not as smart as these guys, and I don't want to be after reading their books, but, uh, and I'm going to simplify it in the, in the simplest possible terms. Systematic theology is taking the Bible and developing a system that, is, that says something like 2 plus 2 equals 4. In other words, you, you find a place for everything in Scripture that makes perfect sense within your formula and so now you, have your, you read the Bible, you come up with your theology, and now you read the Bible through your system. And you read it that way. Now, I like systematic theology. I have two shelves full of books of systematic theologies, which should tell you something right off the bat. There isn't one. There's a system of mathematics, you know that, right? And people, we get to the moon because of it, you know? And uh, the Russians, they're not working on their own system and getting to Pluto. I mean, you know, it, it, we, you know we all understand. But systematic theologies are not like that. They, you start to try and figure things out, and they lead in odd directions. And so there's dozens of them. Well, there's probably more than that. There's some important ones, I guess. But there's dozens and dozens of different systems of theology. Sounds good. But in the area of God's will and my willingness, in the area of God choosing and my freedom, it always leads to unbiblical conclusions. Trying to reconcile God's will and my willingness, whole systems of theology come to the conclusion that I have no will when it comes to salvation, that I have no freedom to choose. They say that everyone who is going to be saved was chosen before they were ever born. They are the elect of God. But they also must conclude that anyone not saved during their life on earth was never chosen they could not be saved. In truth, they were chosen by God to be damned to hell. A lot of Christians sincerely believe what I've just stated. And they'll argue with you about it in very sincere terms. And they're not embarrassed at all about coming to the conclusion that God has abandoned and doomed billions of people to hell. A lot of other Christians are in churches that teach this, although they may not know it. It makes sense only if your ultimate goal is to have a system of theology that you can bring down to a human level. Theologian J.C. Ryle wrote this. We must never be more systematic than Scripture. Now, very simple, but very profound. A great caution for us to remember. We will never in this life on earth fully understand the relationship between God's will and my will, between God's sovereignty and my responsibility, between divine election and freedom to choose. We should be content with our limitations rather than suggest ways of thinking that ultimately reduce God to our own understanding, especially when we come to conclusions that make God appear to be some kind of unloving monster who could have saved everyone but chose instead to damn most of the human race. It's very simple. If your conclusion is contrary to the heart of God, as he's revealed in Scripture, your conclusion is wrong. It doesn't matter how much sense it makes logically. Because we're not talking about logic, necessarily. We're talking about 
the mind of God. Am I saying God's illogical? No, I'm just saying we can't know his mind fully this side of heaven. And so I can say reverently using Jesus' own image, he is clucking for you to come and be saved under the shadow of his wings. It is a cluck and a call that all can hear and anyone can heed. Whosoever will believe. God's love cannot be restrained, but God's love can be refused. Now, most of you are believers. In trying to fully understand the mind of God, don't overlook the heart of God. Let's live as though the gospel were a real offer of salvation to every man, woman, and child. Let's not get sidetracked with any system that restrains the love of God. There are many systems of theology, and some of them put most of the responsibility on man, as if God is, you know, gosh, I hope somebody gets saved someday, as if God doesn't know what's going on or going to happen. That's not what I'm teaching. And see, this is so funny. I love when I do this, whenever I talk about this little area of Scripture, divine election and all, I try and be as casual as possible. But there are people who think, oh, well, you're either this or you're that. There's no middle ground. You're either a Calvinist or an Arminian. There's, you know, and, and since we're not Calvinists, we must be Arminian. Oh, no, we're not. We just, we don't reconcile things that are not at odds with each other. I don't understand how God chose me, but that I also have the freedom to choose. I know that God chose me from before the foundations of the earth. But I didn't know that until I was one of the whosoever who believed. And I'm, I'm okay with that. And what, what some people want to do is go around and say, well, there's, a, you know, there's only this little group of people that's going to be saved, and gee, we're sorry, everybody else is going to hell, but hey, ain't God great. And uh, no, he's not, if that's the way it is. He's a monster. And then there's these other people who are like, man, you, you're going to lose your salvation every few seconds. You probably lost it listening to Gene this morning because he's an Arminian. <laughs> hey, we believe that those things are simultaneously true. God is sovereign, and you are responsible. God has chosen you, and you have the freedom to choose. And so don't overlook the heart of God. Uh, Man is still seeking after knowledge, still wanting to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, still trying to reduce God to our own understanding. I've even had people who have these different systems of theology say, well, now I can understand everything. Oh, man, what a weird thing to say. Now I can understand everything about God. And you better check out what you just said. If you're not yet a believer, you're a chick among foxes. You have no chance of survival unless you come to the hen. If you come heeding the call, you'll find that Jesus died for you to satisfy the foxes. One of my goals this morning is that you'll never look at a chicken the same way again. Or those baby chicks that you get for your kids at Easter time and then What happens to those things? Huh? Okay. They don't all live, is all I'm going to say, but because some of you have cats as well. But anyway, seriously, but, but you know, Jesus was so great at this. And I said a few weeks ago, you know, everywhere in the world, even though it's a fallen world, everywhere you look, you can find 
metaphors and similes and likenesses that teach you principles about the gospel. And really, the next time you know you watch Super Chicken on television or you're at El Pollo Loco, Or the colonel. You're going to think about this. You're going to think, I can't get this out of my head. But why would you want to? This beautiful image of Jesus. Do you ever think about Jesus that way before? As the hen spreading its wings. What a beautiful, really in nature picture of the cross. Giving himself, sacrificing his life. Somebody had to die to satisfy what had happened so that the in a, so, so that the chicks could live. If you do not come to Jesus Christ in your lifetime, you are refusing God's love by an act of your will, and you will be lost forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these images, and I, I'm serious, Lord, I do pray that they would stay with us, because we need reminders of the good news. We need to see Jesus in the everyday events and images of our life. And Jesus, you were so good at seeing truth, pointing out spiritual truth in those things. And, and we just have a small portion of that, I'm sure, a small portion of your teaching and the things that you showed us. Lord, I pray for us as believers that, uh, Lord, we're going to continue to agree to disagree agreeably on different points of theology. I pray that we would understand, Lord, that none of us is ever going to have a perfect knowledge of your mind uh, it's too far beyond us Lord we're too fallen to really grasp it even with the mind of Christ we still have the flesh to contend with and we're just never going to figure some of these things out Lord I, I don't understand how that if in thousands of years of human thought we haven't come to a conclusion why people think today that they have and I pray that we would lay down those arguments get along with one another and cooperate in the sharing of the good news about Jesus Christ that we would see lost men and women as needing to come to you and give their hearts to you. That you are drawing them and, and that it's our responsibility, Lord, uh, not to decide that you're not calling them, but to, to be used of you, to give them the gospel, to represent Christ to them, to model Jesus Christ for them, to be a living epistle in their lives. And so do that, Lord, and help us never to get sidetracked never to believe anything that takes anything away from you in terms of your love for lost mankind. And Lord, if there are unbelievers here in the sound of my voice, Lord, I pray that they would consider the danger that they're in. They live not just with a death threat, they're dead in trespasses and sins already. And they need eternal life. And that's provided for them if they come to the cross and receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. Do that work, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Such a blessing to be together and read and study God's Word. If you're here this morning uh, and you have uh, some needs in your life or you just want to share a prayer request, some of our guys will be down front after the service and they'd love to talk with you. Maybe you are here and you're not a believer or you're a backslidden believer. You want to get right with the Lord either way. Come on down and pray with the guys. Uh, they'll share Christ with you. We're not going to ask you to join the church or give anything to us. If anything, we want to give to you. 
And so don't be afraid to do that. The buses will wait. That's something they say at Crusades sometimes. Billy Graham, he holds it up. The buses will wait. But uh, anyway, we'd love to have you come and be prayed for. Uh, we just, you know, I, I love Sunday mornings. It, it's such a sweet time getting together with, with all of you. It's just like a big spiritual breakfast that we go to. And, and uh, it's up to me. We could do it every day. Uh, but the Lord wants us to go out into the world and touch the lives of people who aren't here and, and share with them through our life and through our words the glory and the wonder of knowing Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you've been encouraged and blessed by being here through the worship and by the teaching of God's Word. Uh, we love you and thank you. And uh, just, you know, today, it might be today. The Lord's coming for His people. It might be today. That'd be fine with me. But I want to be about the business of working for Him and living for Him until that day. Amen? Amen. God bless you.